This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. It has certainly been life in the fast lane in a whole new way for Tesla and its founder and creator, Elon Musk. What a few days of headlines and helping us make sense of it all along the way has been Max Chafkin. He is, of course, features editor over at Bloomberg Business Week, our frequent voice of sanity in all of this, joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in Manhattan. So, Max, bring us up to date some headlines over the weekend. Yeah. So so uh, Elon Musk this morning, as we just heard, uh, uh, basically uh, put, published a blog post uh, trying to explain this line funding secured, which had been at the core of uh, of, of a lot of the controversy because it kind of sounded like he had secured the funding. And as the blog post uh, kind of made clear that the answer is no, uh, as Bloomberg reported over the weekend, uh, uh, Tess, Elon Musk has had some discussions um, with the uh, with basically with the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund, um, and so it looks like they are a potential. Uh, buyer here. We don't know how many shareholders would sell. We don't know what the price would be. We, we really don't know much, but but we have a tiny bit more clarity than we had before. And my big question, of course, was the headline that came out that Musk said this will not be a traditional LBO structure. There's going to be more equity and less debt. And that was something we were really all debating last week is what type of go private deal would this look like? Seems like we got a little bit more clarity. He does not want an LBO. Yeah, well, you can't really have an LBO if, if the company is losing tons of money, which There's is nothing thing to L. Right, right, <laughs> which is what's been happening. I think the way to think about this, um, if you want to try to see it from the Elon Musk point of view, is you know, Uber. So so Uber is a high potential company that's in the automotive industry with a high valuation. I think that's how Elon Musk sees Tesla. He, he doesn't think this is a maturing car company. He thinks this is a company with a successful car that's about to take over the entire auto industry, the entire energy industry, that's going to be worth way more one day than it is today. And that would be the kind of reason that you as a shareholder would be willing to do this. Because shareholders, if they go along with this plan, if they allow their shares to go from being being, you know, shares in a public company to a private one, they're going to lose lots of rights and they're not going to be able to sell. They're going to be locked up. It's going to be like like their Uber shareholders. So, Max, we're going to hear later on from our colleague, Ben Bain, who's going to tell us a little bit about how busy uh, the SEC office out there is in San Francisco, uh, owing to some folks other than than Tesla. But specifically, the SEC is still going to be looking into what he said, when he said it, and what he meant, right? Absolutely. I mean, even when these things happen in kind of a more orderly way, uh, I think SEC questions and litigation are common because there's so much money at stake. And and you have a, a situation here where it's so unconventional, um, it's it's sort of inevitable that the SEC is going to ask questions. If they're not asking questions, they're not doing their job. And I don't think we should. I don't think we should read into it and assume that they're gonna they're gonna find something debilitating to Elon Musk. But it's definitely going to be something that that Tesla will have to deal with, that Elon will have to deal with. And just quickly here in the last few uh, 30 seconds or so, what's been the analyst or the stock price reaction originally on this news this morning, up 2%, but now we're a little bit 
paring back some of those gains. What's been sort of the reaction today? Well, like you said, not much. And I think the, the reason is that if you were paying attention to Elon Musk over the last year or even longer, this is kind of what you figured. Elon Elon makes his own reality. He's often very optimistic. Um, and I think most people assumed that when he said funding secure, what he meant was something like this, that somebody important had said they would invest, but they hadn't necessarily like signed a term sheet. And, and that's kind of what we're getting. It, and it's amazing just how this is all played out. And, and even the, the clarity from us didn't bring a whole lot of clarity to the market. Max Chafkin, uh, features editor over at Bloomberg Business Week. Thank you so much. That's right. There are a lot of men at work in the Permian Basin. This is an amazing story that really shows the potentially unintended sociological and economic consequences. To hear more on this story, we have Rachel Adams Heard, our energy reporter, joining us from our Houston Bureau. Rachel, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So how did you find out about this, that these dorm-like compounds uh, there in the Permian Basin? So they're actually not new. Um, they were up in the Bakken in North Dakota, uh, still are actually, but in fewer numbers now. But these are really just uh, popping up now more in the Permian because prices are back up and there are just so many people flocking out there to jump in on this boom. And how many of them are there? I mean, if we were to go and look around, are there like hundreds of them just popping up? Yeah, I mean, it depends. So some of them are independent developers and others are backed by these oil field service companies and operators. Um, but there are thousands of workers out there. I mean, some of these facilities can already handle more than, you know, 1,200 people per per complex. Well, and as you rightly point out, this is not new. And in fact, it's it's a throwback in a lot of ways. I mean, I, looking at the pictures, which are fantastic, and, and I would uh, commend this story to, to anyone, uh, you get this sense of you know, this is taking us back a, a century, it feels like, in, in terms of the way they're living, these sort of generally it's all dudes leaving their families at home uh, to go work here. Is this just the way it's going to be? Is this temporary? What What's the future here? I mean, I think I think the communities would like to see these guys move out there permanently with their families. Um, but a lot of them work, you know, shifts that are two to three weeks long. So when they're not when they're not out in the field or behind the wheel of a truck, they want to be back home in Louisiana or other parts of Texas or you know as far away as Maryland sometimes um, to be with their families. When do we start to see some development come in that could be permanent, or who are the investment companies behind this that really could see maybe a long-term opportunity to really invest back in the community, especially if oil is planning to stay perhaps around that $70 barrel range where companies can be profitable? Yeah, I think you're starting to see that in some of the cities like Midland and Odessa, but a lot of where this new activity is um, is pretty far from places that have the infrastructure in place to be able to handle more permanent structures. Um, so, I, I mean, uh, while there is going to be some development that's longer term, I think for at least now people really see these as the solution to handle the huge influx of workers you have. So, Rachel, tell us what these places are are, are like. Are they Spartan? Are they well-appointed? What, what are they, what do they, what do they feel like? 
I mean, they kind of feel like you're in a, you know, a place where there are 80 single-wide trailer-looking buildings. Um, it's pretty empty during the day because everyone's either out at job sites or sleeping if you're on the night shift. Um, and then super early in the morning and late afternoon is when the F-150s start lining up to take people out to job sites. And yeah, talk us, give us a little bit more color because I was reading through the article and it said alcohol is not allowed, but there's been a few disturbances and they're trying to put systems in place to make women, for example, feel safe. Uh, What is it like? I mean, I just can't imagine. So I was expecting it to be a little bit more uh, rough and wild than it than it was. Uh, I talked to law enforcement out there, and they actually said that the man camps have fewer problems um, than some of the RV parks and even the hotels, just because they are so policed by the companies who kind of acknowledge that there is not this great reputation that they have. Um, so they're really doing everything that they can to combat that so that the communities let them stay, because without them, you know, it would be really hard to find a, pot, a spot for all these workers to live. And so, you know, just sort of going back to where we started a little bit, Rachel, so, you know, where does it where does it go from here? I mean, did these sort of fade away if the price of oil and and all this uh, all this activity uh, starts to subside a bit or, you know, do we see something more permanent going on in terms of the sort of demographic economic shift? Yeah, I mean, I I think the sense that I got was optimism. You know, people are saying it's not like the last boom where uh, all these companies just threw money at it um, and weren't able to operate in a lean way that um, would be able to carry them through a downturn. Um, But at the same time, you know, they a lot of them were burned last time and they were laid off from their jobs and were just recently rehired. So I heard a lot of people say, like, we're saving money now because we know that eventually it'll go back down. It is nothing if not a cyclical business. We've learned that uh, the hard way over the years. Rachel Adams heard energy reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from our Houston borough. Fantastic story. Fantastic reporting. Thanks so much. Uh, so, Taylor, you know, I have to say, you know, this is the sort of story that, that caught my attention because we don't always know – all the consequences of these little boomlets, right? Right. Well, and what was really interesting to me in this story is they're talking about, we've talked a lot about wage growth here and how unskilled wages, you know, can't get a boost down there. You can get $100,000 a year for unskilled labor. unskilled labor. Part of that is they're having a hard time attracting people. So they're really having to offer money to get people to go down there and work. But 100 k a year doesn't sound like a too bad of a gig. And with markets on the move, you have sort of a risk-off trade today. Little fears over some contagion from Turkey and Argentina. Given all of this, it's a great time to speak with Dave Ellison. He's a portfolio manager over at Hennessy Funds. And Dave, you've won the prestigious award from Morningstar of being the most tenured portfolio manager. So lucky for us, you've seen a lot of days like today. And I just want to start with when you sort of start to see some pullbacks like this. Are these good opportunities? Opportunities to come in and buy the dip, or are you getting a little bit more defensive here? Well, I think you have to, you know, anyway, good afternoon to both of you. I, I, I think the uh, the issue is sort of why it's happening. You know, if it seems to be a one-off, if it's company-related, it's probably not as worrisome, but here you have a country now, and it sort of reminds me of what happened to Greece or Puerto Rico, where they, you know, the debt gets too high, people start to flee the country, liquidity dries up, the currency goes down or goes up depending on which way you look at it, and uh, the country now is sitting there unable to refinance its debt, and so, you know, what's going to happen the next six to nine months? 
um, you know, it's not really about the leadership. It's about the debt levels and then what happens to the currency. So, you know, I think you're seeing a little bit of the impact of the liquidity being drawn out of the system, especially by the Fed. And you're seeing in the currency markets now, as opposed to, let's say, in the housing market uh, that we had, let's say, back in 2008. And so how much does the Fed here in the United States look at an issue like this? How much does it factor into what they're going to do for the balance of the year in your estimation, Dave? Well, we haven't heard much from them about it. Um, You know, obviously, they wouldn't talk today, but I mean, as things like this is going on, they didn't really say much about Puerto Rico. They really didn't say much about Greece, didn't react to it. I think we have to always be mindful that uh, we live in a country that is the reserve currency. And so that we are, we don't have the same sense of how the world operates that than these other countries do. And I think if you put yourself in a position of being in that country, let's say Turkey or Puerto Rico or Greece or whatever the next country is, it's a much different economic environment because you do not have control of your currency and therefore you don't have control of your prices or your interest rates. And so I, I think it's hard for some of us in this country to sort of understand what it's like to be in these countries right. and operate a business. And, and, and so to sit there and say, well, the Fed's not going to react, I mean, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But it historically, it hasn't reacted to any of that stuff in the past, at least, you know, the last six or eight, eight you know, years in terms of reacting to currency changes. So I don't think it's going to do that now. Dave, I want to look at some of the individual stocks that you're holding. Uh, We see a lot of these that have just come out with earnings. One particularly that caught my eye was Zillow. Um, Interestingly enough, we heard from the company last week, and they're off uh, about 2% again today. Uh, Just concerns over their forecast and and agreeing to buy a mortgage lender. Um, We spoke with Steve Eisman of The Big Short, and that is a company that he's not very constructive on. I think he considered that as, as one he was shorting again. Not very constructive. That's a very nice way of putting it. <laughs> uh, you know, but the CEO came out and, and said that he sees the company is growing and, and getting bigger and better. What is your take here on Zillow and how have you had the courage to stick with them? Well, Zillow, I think the story there is you're building a brand around um, looking for uh, properties around the country and to some degree around the world, both residential. Obviously, it's a residential-based product now, but it's growing into these other products that are based on, you know, you know, sort of looking at properties and looking at real estate just like, in a sense, you would research for stocks or bonds. And the idea is that gonna, that's going to grow. And if you talk to any real estate person in the market, uh, you know, people that are looking for houses don't go to the brokers anymore. They go to Zillow, look what the houses are worth, ch- you know, check out the pictures. I mean, it becomes a source of information. And so it's, it's an information provider, which is typically what has a lot of value in this world. That's why you see, you know, you see names like um, MSCI or you see, you know, th- those types of companies that provide information to the marketplace or to people have a lot of value. Uh, I think the problem now is that they've decided that they want to get into lending money. And that's a lower PE business. That's why Visa trades at, you know, 30 times earnings and Bank America trades at 12 because one doesn't lend money and the other one does. And so so from a PE perspective, it's a much lending of money is a much lower PE business than providing information to the marketplace, uh, you know, via this electronic platform. And so that that's why I think the stock is down and we have to let them, you know, either figure that out or work that out for themselves. 
And Dave Taylor, in her intro, uh, rightly alluded to your your tenure doing this. You are, we should uh, mention, a protege of none other than uh, Peter Lynch, of course, the famed value investor. And, and one of the big holdings, sort of broader holdings you have across a number of names is financial services in both the large cap and, and the small cap. Bank of America looks like an especially big holding. What, what's the value of, of the big financials right now? Well, the value is that they basically have built balance sheets and income statements uh, and corporate structures around a 30-year bull market in bonds that now is over. And so they need to restructure their balance sheets and restructure their their entire business. And that's the opportunity. Uh, and in the meantime, they're making a tremendous amount of money, have a regulatory moat that the Fed has given them around Dodd-Frank and the stress test. And so the, the goal here over the next 5 to 10 to 15 years is to restructure the business around building a balance sheet and an income statement that lives or, or survives or lives by or thrives by rates that are flat to up. And I'm not saying that rates are going to go up a lot, but we're not going to have another 30-year bull market in bonds. And so I think the the opportunity here is for them to continue to grow their profitability and reduce the risk of those earnings that they have. And so, again, if they turn into Visa, a Visa-type earning stream in right. the next 10 years, the, the, you know, the multiple will probably double on the stock. And if earnings grow at all, you've got a pretty good story on your hands. And along the way, you've got buybacks and dividends. So, and they've got, you know, again, you know, the the biggest market share in the business, and they have a great deposit franchise. So you don't, you know, there's not a tremendous amount of things that can go wrong um, from here, except you know, for them not executing. Yeah. Because uh, I think the, you know, so that, that that's sort of the bigger story. Got it. Um, it's a get to get rich slowly story. There you go. All right. Well, Dave Ellison, thanks so much, senior vice president and portfolio manager at Hennessy Funds, joining us on the phone from Boston. Uh, Dow uh, down about a third of a percentage point. S and P down about the same. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. That's where we're going. Uh, we're joined today by Steve Brown. He's Senior Portfolio Manager at American Century Investments. And what's great is because he's joining us here in studio, we get to talk all things REITs. My first sort of broad macro question is always about liquidity because REITs are known for being fairly liquid. But as we've seen some of the headlines and the tensions in the news recently with concerns more overseas than here in the U.S., I just wonder, how's liquidity right now? Well, in the, in the REIT market, liquidity is very good. I mean, in terms of the shares trading, there's a there's a lot of liquidity in them. And then in terms of access to capital, which is probably what you're really going after, is the debt capital markets are wide open for commercial real estate in the U.S. So in terms of access to credit, access to debt, uh, REITs in U.S. real estate are in a, a good spot in terms of excellent liquidity. And so when you think about real estate, one of the places that would scare a lot of people away, it feels like, is shopping malls. And yet... Yes, we, we that's uh, something that maybe you're a little more optimistic about. That's a good uh, good question. The uh, retail in general has had a tough run. Retail REITs over the last 24 months or so, we've increased our weighting in some of the Class A malls in the portfolio, such as uh, Simon Property Group yep. and Talbot Centers. And when I say Class A malls, these are the kind of malls that do eight nine hundred dollars a foot. Uh, here we are, based in New York, and for instance, Talbot Centers 
owns the Short Hills Mall in, in New Jersey, probably does 1,000 a foot. Simon owns uh, both Roosevelt Field and uh, Garden City, Long Island, as well as the Westchester Mall. Those, so when you think of A malls, you're thinking of a mall anchored by Nordstrom's, Neiman Marcus, uh, Macy's, and then having a lot of uh, good inline tenants, including a Warby Parker and a good food right. and dining component. So they're seeing uh, rent growth. They're seeing sales growth of 4 or 5% this year. And they're seeing uh, same story an OI growth of two, three, four percent. So the A malls are certainly surviving and, and frankly thriving. And frankly, the stocks of retailers have done well. Too. And, and I got to ask you about that a little more. Why? Like why? Why amid the retail apocalypse right. are these guys doing okay? Well, a couple of reasons. One is the retailers, which really took it on the chin too, have really upped their e-commerce platforms, ah. so they're doing better. And secondly, they've they have closed a lot of stores. They've closed the stores where they weren't making any money in, and that's basically in the B and the C malls. Got it. And then they've improved, and they have leaner inventories this year, so you may or may not have noticed, but there's been a little bit less discounting when you go to the stores. So that's the retailers. And then in terms of the, the REITs or the mall REITs, as I mentioned, uh, they've been selling their weaker assets and reinvesting in the, the stronger ones, either bringing in uh, more offerings or bringing in hotels and apartments to the properties. And we've seen a major bifurcation in terms of the owners of Class A malls, where you're seeing rents and NOI go up, whereas the B and C malls are seeing rents and occupancies go down, and a lot of those properties are being given back to the lenders. I wonder, too, when we look at shopping malls, if any of this plays into your world, where I'm seeing a lot of shopping malls sort of redefine themselves. Instead of just being a retail store, they're trying to bring in a movie theater or a restaurant or a rock climbing wall or a gym just to get people to come back. Does that have any impact, sort of the diversification that they're making? Is that helping to boost sort of the shopping mall rates as well? Yes. What they're doing is a lot of the the A malls that I just mentioned – They've bought back Sears department stores. Mm. Sears has is, is, is been doing poorly, and they've been uh, – the malls, the Class A malls have been paying money to get the Sears stores back and reconfiguring them into something that's more relevant for retail today. So they have the financial mm-hmm. strength to do that, whether that's a, a, a Zara or an H&M, whether that's a movie theater, whether that's a food court or a food hall. They're using it for different purposes, and because the – Tenant demand is strong in those markets we talked about that they've been able to do that profitably. So let's talk apartments. Who do you like there in terms of that segment of the of the residential uh, REIT area? Okay. It's been a very interesting and good area for this year. We own a couple different names in what we call the residential sector. One is Sun Communities, which owns manufactured housing uh, properties throughout the U.S. Hmm. The stock's up about 8% year-to-date. And it's doing well because middle America is, is doing well in terms of job growth, income growth. Another name we own is called American Homes for Rent. It's part of residential. They own single-family rentals. They own homes. They rent them out. Uh, as you probably know, home prices in the U.S. are up 5 or 6% this year. And rent growth, the ability to raise rents in these assets, which are homes for rent, has been about 3 or 4%, so much better than inflation. And then in terms of a bread-and-butter apartment company – uh, we also own UDR. They have a, a nationwide portfolio of apartments, but heavily concentrated on the coasts. And again, they're seeing rent growth that's superior to inflation. So it's been a good story, and all those kind of names have been working this year. REITs aren't doing gangbusters. They're up about one and a half, two percent 2%, but these names are up 2 3 4 5%, so quite decent. Steve Brown, Senior Portfolio Manager, American Century Investments. You guys have about $170 billion under management joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Taylor, 
Always interesting to hear an optimistic uh, real estate story. Yeah, especially when it comes to real estate and the housing market. We've talked a lot about rising rates and any potential impact that may have. Uh, But he mentioned middle America home prices are still still rising so often, Jason. As you know, we're focused here on the on the Northeast, but there is another big world out there. And we didn't even get to his data storage, Reed, which I'm just wondering, big data's in, so that Reed has to be doing Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Have to come back to that. Uh, looking at the markets right now, all the averages off slightly, a little bit of the red. Uh, we'll get more to that as we get closer to the close. I'm Jason Kelly alongside Taylor Riggs. I'm driving my car. I turn on the how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. You're hearing all of our drive time music here. We're coming up into the market close just less than about 10 minutes or so. And what's great is we have Ed Keon here. He's the chief investment strategist of QMA. That's Quantitative Management Associates. We know them because they're a subsidiary of Fame Shop coming out of Newark, New Jersey, PGM. Um, really interesting, um, Ed. I want to start just on sort of a broad macro question, which I know we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of Lehman Brothers. We all heard about the quants. And I wonder, in 10 years, have the quants learned anything? Have they changed? Or are we sort of in for perhaps another repeat when the quants well, gave quants, us a tough time? Quants are always evolving. So uh, our, our models change all the time, and a little bit at a time, usually. And when you have a what is probably a once-in-a-lifetime event with uh, the 2008-2009 crisis, you want to be careful not to overreact and change everything so you're prepared for that particular event but not for other events. So you hope your models are sufficiently robust. You know, I think back to what we do today compared to what we did uh, 10 years ago. I think we pay a lot more attention to credit spreads now, for example, as we started to during the crisis. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, but mostly I think it's, it's an evolutionary uh, change, not a revolutionary one. So as you have written and said, I believe, tough not to be bullish right now. I mean, think about the earnings season we just came out of. People are feeling pretty good out there. How much does that worry a guy like you? Well, we kind of get paid to worry. Yeah. Uh, so what could go wrong? And uh, so we're, you know, we are bullish. What well, we're calling ourselves barely bullish. Uh, okay. And so we're overweight stocks or overweight U.S. stocks in our global portfolios. Uh, but at the same time, we're, you know, that we're not quite as aggressive as we were uh, at the beginning of the year or even, uh, you know, a year or two ago. Uh, so we're, we're, and partially it's because some of the events that are underway right now, we just can't really handicap mm-hmm. uh, what, what what the odds of a trade like war. Like what? Yeah. Well, trade war, and of course, most recently, possibly of a global financial crisis. We don't think either of those two things is likely, but because we don't have a model that can really help us make that decision, it's it's hard to get so aggressive when you have potentially big things. You really don't know what the odds of them occurring mm-hmm. or, or what damage could be done. It's really interesting that you mentioned you're overweight in, in U.S. equity markets. We had a great chart out earlier today how the divergence between performance in the S&P 500 versus the MSCI XUS, that spread is now its widest it's been going back since 2014. You had the S&P 500 up 6% with the MSCI XUS off about 5.8%. And from a valuation standpoint, 
those stocks are 25% undervalued relative to the S&P 500 on a P.E. ratio. That's right. When we started the year, that was why we're overweight non-U.S. stocks. It was basically a valuation call. But I think a couple of things have happened. One is you get that one idiosyncratic issue with the United States, which is the huge tax cut. So that made U.S. equities more attractive. And even though you might say that was discounted late last year, that seems to have persisted. Mm -hmm. And the size, and as you pointed out during earnings season, just the beats are coming in at an enormous pace. So I think that was one thing. And the second thing is, frankly, the U.S. safe haven status, which is somewhat ironic that in some cases the U.S. has caused some turmoil around the world. But that actually benefits us in the sense that that causes funds to flow into U.S. stocks and bonds. Well, it feels like we had some evidence of that last Friday, right? That's exactly right. I mean, with Turkey – doing what it, I mean, Turkey aflame, essentially, at least economically, uh, U.S. started to look pretty good. That's right. So I think that safe haven uh, aspect of U.S. uh, assets, but also you're getting strong growth out of both the U.S. economy and corporate earnings at the same time. And interest rates, although they're rising, are still modest. So, you know, it's hard to be bearish under those circumstances, but I think it's right to be cautious. I have to joke a little bit because we talk all the time about idiosyncratic risk. But if I keep hearing that things are idiosyncratic (laughs) risks, you start to wonder if there is something more than that. Do you see anything on the horizon if it would be a turkey contagion or a China debt problem that makes you nervous at all? Well, we've been worrying about China so long that it almost seems like we have uh, – it's like the boil called wolf. You're getting tired of worrying about China. But if there is a, a, a aspect of the Turkey problems that could cause a global problem, it would probably work its way through China. I don't think, again, I don't think that's likely, but that's possible. And then from a longer-term perspective, we think the market may be underestimating the risk of inflation next year. Um, not necessarily this year. But as we look ahead, we think there's a possibility that wages might start to rise rapidly. That's great for workers. America needs a raise. But that could cause problems for the Fed, and it may be difficult to – uh, proceed along their same course and still manage to damp down inflation. And just, Jason, quickly on that note, we had this story earlier where unskilled labor down in the Permian basis, yeah. Basin, you now get $100,000 for. Right. And so how much do you worry about the, the Fed getting it right right now? We've only got about 20 seconds left. I'm just thinking about taking one of those $100,000 jobs. <laughs> the Fed has a really you difficult job. you got to live job. in a man dorm, just <laughs> so you know. <laughs> the really difficult job of the Fed is there's no playbook for going from zero zero interest rates. It right. never happened before in human history or even negative interest rates. So it, it's hard to find a, uh, a precedent. And so the Fed's going to have to make it up as they go along. I have great confidence on this Fed, but history tells us that most of the time things go too far. Right. Well, the good news is we're all making it up as we go along. Absolutely. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Ed Keon, Chief Investment Strategist at QMA Quantitative Management Associates, based in Newark, New Jersey, but happily joining us this afternoon here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in Manhattan. Thanks for being with us. All right. Well, we are getting closer and closer to the close. Uh, Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ all down in the red. We'll see where we end up as we get a little bit closer to 4 p.m. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 